Hi there, I'm Lori Hellman, a mom to an incredible young adult son on the autism spectrum. My goal when creating the Living the Sky Life podcast three years ago was that the content of each episode bring hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways to each listener. The special needs parenting village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. If you haven't already, please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account. And let's keep the conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and written review and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in and subscribing to season three of Living the Sky Life. Welcome back to Living the Sky Life. My guest today is Vaish Sarathi. She is a functional nutrition practitioner and science educator and is also the founder of Functional Nutrition for Kids, a functional nutrition practice for children, and Plum Pudding Chemistry, which is a science and math education practice for kids of all abilities. Her TEDx talk, Who Decides How Smart You Are, talks about the value of assuming intelligence and has been called mind-blowing and perspective-shifting by practitioners and parents. Vaish believes that sound nutrition an equal education and a rested mind are the birthright of every child, and no functional practice is possible without truly assuming competence. Her perspective is shaped by her son, Sid, who is a non-speaking 14-year-old poet with Down syndrome and autism, who has a sharp mind and a quick wit. So please enjoy my very informative and educational conversation with Feisch. So welcome back to Living the Sky Life. I have the pleasure today of having a very, very smart uh, mom on here with me to talk to me about all things uh, functional nutrition. So welcome, um, Vice, to the podcast. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I um, was stumbling upon your website by another guest that I had on. I think she was on your podcast also. And I... I felt like I kind of went down a rabbit hole with all of the stuff that you have to share. There is so much information, your blogs, your podcasts. Um, so I want to get into all of that, but um, I guess to do an introduction, you're a functional nutrition educator with two master's degrees and a PhD in environmental chemistry, which is a mouthful. <laughs> Can you share with us, um, you know, the story of your incredible son, Sid, and how you kind of came through the diagnosis that he has and kind of rerouted your career to being all about functional nutrition? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Sid was born with uh, Down syndrome. He's 14 now. When he was um, three, we noticed that it, he was, um, you know, at the time, I wasn't socializing much with other parents with Downs. Um, you know, we didn't really have a social group or support group or anything like that. It wasn't something I was necessarily looking for. In my mind, I didn't differentiate. I had not internalized his diagnosis. And I thought that was the way to go, is, was to not pay much attention to the diagnosis and just be normal. But his development was very delayed. He wasn't speaking. And I, I say in my TEDx talk too that I, you know, he... Um, I started off with very high expectations, but slowly uh, when he didn't respond even to his name, he wouldn't respond to um, really from us. And he didn't show that he could understand anything that we did. Therefore we thought he really didn't understand anything that we did. And then when he was three, I remember meeting another girl with Down syndrome who was also three. 
and who was speaking and asking for cookies. And I was like, oh, this doesn't, maybe Sid doesn't just have Down syndrome. And then we asked, and then the doctor said, it looks like um, he might have a diagnosis of autism too. This is actually already a, a big sign of how when you have one diagnosis, every other symptoms actually swept under the carpet of that diagnosis. Yep. Uh, a big term for this is diagnostic uh, overshadowing, but I mean, this can be very benign like this, but can also be very big when you can, you may have neurological symptoms and then, oh, it's just Down syndrome, oh, it's just autism. Everything is, is that diagnosis. But coming back to the main story, um, it was, um, he, he was going to a Montessori school. He was very well included. And then I remember when he first went to public school, he was in first grade. And um, I just remember going and picking him up and um, Sid just looked like a zombie. And I could tell that, um, that he was not getting the attention uh, that he deserved, but I didn't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that public school wasn't the place for him at the time. And I just, I just felt like people were just going through the motions with him at the time. So when I pulled him back and I tried to enroll him into an online public school for his second grade, they asked us to do a placement test, which is which is very weird to me at the time. I don't believe in placement tests to this day, but I'm very grateful for that placement test. So I said, there's no way on earth my son even understands a single question on the test, forget about solving. He can't even hold a pen. I don't know how you're expecting me to do a placement test. And um, Sid continues to have really poor visual and motor skills. They just said, do it. Okay, and I really like thank them with all my heart. So I was posing these questions to see, they're typical second grade questions. What I did at the time was, I think there were multiple choice questions. One of them was a pattern recognition, like there was three dots and it was a complex dot arrangement. And then I tore up the four choices and put them in front of him. And I said, do you know which, what the four choices? And I remember that he, he couldn't point, he mm -hmm. couldn't hold a pencil. He just took his hand and batted at the right answer. And I remember that that moment being the defining moment in my life then, because of course, like everybody else, I thought, okay, this is probably a fluke. I should try again. But I listened to my better nature and I didn't try again. Um, and then that was when we got introduced to um, the rapid prompting method because people were talking about it and we started doing our PM. But I would say that the biggest frustration was that every mom, like every mom, I could see that there was there was something that was unmet in him. It just didn't make sense that there was a child that the school district was telling me that he was in the 0.1 percentile of the world's cognition or of, you know, of kids his age. It, I, don't, I, mean, I don't even think there is such a scale, but it, it was completely so nonsensical to me at the time that I had to try something else. I think a lot of it was that Sid was so within quotes, low functioning with respect to motor and mm -hmm. motor skills and speech that I think it really pushed me into a corner where we had to look for something else. I believe that if Sid was speaking, I may have just accepted everybody else, else's diagnosis or whatever his cognition was. So, I'm, so it was all of these factors that came together and just being exposed to um, spelling and letter boards at the right moment. And then, and then basically within a couple of weeks, the entire everything transformed for us. I remember that I was, um, I was teaching him, um, you know, just the numbers and he would look bored. And I learned very early to use boredom as a cue for moving ahead, as opposed to where in school at the time they was used boredom as a cue to going back and not boredom, but they would think that the child wasn't paying attention. And mm -hmm. so they would go back and do the same thing again. So we quickly moved from addition to multiplication. And then 
when he wasn't paying attention, we would do exponents. And then we ramped up very quickly. I honestly don't believe that Sid is, is special in any way. I just think that we came across the right things at the right time and we, we got um, mentorship, though not individual. It's just that I was exposed to the work of the right people at the right time. Yeah. You know, it's, there's so much there, um, you know, kind of going back, I, I talk a lot um, on the podcast and, and social media about my son, Skylar, and the challenges we've always had is that his motor delay, he was hypotonic um, for many years of his life and he still has low functioning. So um, like you with RPM, we started spelling to communicate a year and a half ago and he has made incredible strides with it, but it's always a little bit more of a struggle for him because he doesn't use the pencil with the stencils. He has to use foam letters and he points at them and he can mm. point, but he gets really tired really fast. I mean, isolating that arm and that finger and having to navigate your eyes to find the right letter, but he too seems bored sometimes. And I, it's through all the RPM and through the spelling websites and all the people that I've talked to that I'm like, okay. So I ordered him a 26 letter board the other day and a numbers board um, because he's on the three separate boards right now. And I'm like, we can't have open communication until he can have all the infinite possibilities of the entire alphabet mm -hmm. in front of him. So I'm going to kind of push him there. But, but like you said, you know, when we, we did all of the tests and the, um, the screenings and all the things, and it kept coming back that Skylar, even at age eight or nine was 18 months of age cognitive mm -hmm. ability because he couldn't mm -hmm. speak. So he couldn't, yeah. you know, they asked all these questions. Can he move this from here to here? And can he, you know, sound out his name? And no. So then they basically tell you, your child is cognitively a baby still. Mm -hmm. And that's what I thought until spelling came along. I didn't know he was retaining all of these things. And he was a true 18 year old in every sense of the word with what mm -hmm. he knows. So did Sid take to the boards or, or, or the RPM, um, in the, in the papers and the matching and stuff quickly, or did it take him a minute to use his body and navigate to get out what he wanted to say? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I, we started with very low motor. So, um, uh, choices and with, with between two choices, we started with very low motor. It took him a really long time to navigate to open communication many years, in fact. Okay. And, um, he is open now, but he's, but even that is not generalized in the sense that if you were to come and wanting to hold the board with Sid, you would probably have to train with him for a month. So when you have a child with low motor, it, I think the one thing we should, I mean, you know this, I know this, but we need to realize as a society that it has nothing to do with cognition, right? So all it has to do with motor, it's low motor and it remains low motor. Vision is motor, speech is motor, gestures are motor. Um, everything that we communicate with is motor and that's all there is. But when children are really low motor, even when we use spelling or letter boards or RPM or STC, whatever you may use, they may still have difficulty getting, getting to a full, it may take a little bit of time. And generalization is another issue where it may take, again, it may take the same time moving from person to person. It's not, it's not a randomized double blind study where mm -hmm. you bring anybody in. And that's unfortunately how these children are studied is that the validity of their communication is based upon, okay, let me bring a completely random person who knows nothing about your son. They'll hold a letter board and he should be able to spell. That's complete nonsense. It doesn't work like that yep. because, because 
the child's visual field is not a neuro, the way the child sees the world and hears the world, perceives the world sensorially is very different. And that entire sensory field changes when you bring in a new person, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, well, that's that, but I think that we need to, um, we need to be really, um, of course, patient with our, with, with kids that are low in motor, but also be constantly creative and, and trying to see what is it that they can work with. And that may not be the same in every environment. So it is trans thinking about transitioning to school this year after being homeschooled for many years. And it's possible that all of these techniques, this open communication may fall to the side because I'm not sure if they'll be open to be trained by me. I'm going to push, do my best to push them. But mm -hmm. it's just that everything that you've worked for is still is still with you, right? So it's 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 a hard and uh, and a steep hill to climb, but very worth it. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, I've been told this by Soma um, with RPM and our current spelling therapist that we use that having your parent, um, even your mom, as your communication partner is tough because you know. And I've talked to um, many uh, spellers that are adults, mm -hmm. and they've said the same thing that it is harder for them to spell with their parent because. They want to be perfect and they hate when they make a mistake or they mess up because they just are trying so hard to show their parents all that they're capable of and they don't want to let them down, which is crazy pressure they put on themselves. Um, yeah, but they just, I, I don't doubt that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's a challenge. So I see what you're saying about just anybody walking in and holding the board. I don't right. think that it would work. So you're obviously extremely passionate about giving all kids a fair chance at life. Um, and, and you talk a lot on your website and, and all of your talks and blogs and things about, you know, nutrition specifically that sustains them and, and autoimmunities and just nutrition in general. So can you tell us a little bit about what exactly functional nutrition is and just kind of the whole thought press beh process behind all of those other mm -hmm. ailments that a lot of our kids have mine does. <laughs> so yeah yeah absolutely I, I like to start with um a, a story or a or a like a theoretical case study um to compare functional nutrition to nutrition um a nutrition is a lot about what your child eats for example um the the example that i usually give is that if your child had failure to thrive and if they weren't growing well if you went to a nutritionist they were probably going to look at the net calories consumed by your child if they're eating enough calories they might add more protein, they might add more, um, maybe if they're wise enough, they might add more fat or whatever it is, but usually they'll add more protein. They're not always necessarily looking at where the protein is coming from. If you have a little bit more of a woke nutritionist, they might be looking at some food sensitivities and so on, but usually even that doesn't happen. But a functional nutritionist is probably looking at the fact that, okay, it's not just the calories that your child consumes, but what is your child doing with that food? Because not every child consumes the same amount of calories. We don't have a standardized, uh, despite what we might be told, there might there is no standardized calorie requirement. Every child, there are lots of children that don't eat much and, and still grow fine. So what is it that you're doing with the food that you eat? And that's where functional nutrition comes in, is that um, the entire digestive process to start with, right? And which starts all the way from your mouth. Are they chewing well? Is the food being broken down by stomach acid, by enzymes, by bile? Is it being absorbed through the small intestine? Do you have uh, microbial diversity? We, I mean, there, there's just within digestion, I could talk about a hundred things that mm -hmm. could affect digestion. But then we would move on to 
um, that would lead to uh, perhaps potential immune reactions or inflammation. What is going on? Why is your child not processing that food and converting it into whatever is needed for, for the growth process to happen? So that's the main difference. Nutrition, I think, is about what you eat. And I would say functional nutrition is more about not only what you eat, but what are you doing with what you eat? Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah. you know, again, always referencing Skylar, um, it took us until 2018 to really be seen by, we tried all the local gastroenterologists around town and nobody really, other than telling him, telling us to give him Miralax, um, at Mm -hmm. nauseum levels, which is horrible. Um, he was having for his entire life, five to six days straight of constipation. Um, he would have choking episodes is what we called them because he wasn't chewing his food very well. And even then he, he didn't have the muscle control to, spit it back up. So it would be hours and hours of phlegm and just coughing up and, you know, just gagging and stuff. And so we had issues upper and lower, you know, so we finally, he was diagnosed with, um, esophageal disease and ulcerative colitis. And the most frustrating thing that I've tried to explain to parents is that everybody said that's just part of autism. Constipation is mm-hmm. just part of autism. The low, the swallowing issues and picky eating and all those things. That's just, that's autism. It's not, it's two separate things, multiple separate things. So can you get into a little bit of that with the GI side of things and, you know, how that, that functional nutrition plays a huge role in everything else happening with their body? Because if they're in my non-medical opinion. It's Skylar has been so distracted by this stomach pain and all of that going on that he, even as hard as he wants to focus his body, like on spelling or other things, he's so distracted because he's constantly fighting that ulcerative colitis flare up pain and all those things. So he's not Mm -hmm. really there. And I also feel like that has implemented the issues we've had with toilet training because it's, Mm -hmm. He just, he can't control any of that. So um, am I way off or are those? No, no, uh, I think, so there's a lot of, um, so there's there's studies coming out that there's over 80% of kids with autism have GI conditions, right? That is good to know. But unfortunately, we need to make sure that that is not interpreted as autism being the same as GI issues, which Mm -hmm. like you said, you're right, just because you have... um, because you have autism doesn't mean we we let your body be uncomfortable, right? There, <laughs> yeah. There's neurodiversity and there's just what biochemistry, like if you, you you need to have a bowel movement every day. You need to just to be comfortable, right? You need to, you need to not be in pain. You need to not be in misery. And all of these things are, when I talk about giving a child a fair chance at life, this, this is what I mean is that everything else is on one side, but you need to be comfortable just because you have, um, you're autistic doesn't mean that that comes with a discomfort that we just take for granted, right? So every, uh, this, it's really important that everybody get a GI workup and it doesn't have to be with a fancy GI doctor. I think a lot of times it might be better if it's not, because when you go to a functional medicine doctor, they're looking at stool tests, they're looking at urine tests, they're just looking at how your body's biochemistry is working. And hopefully, um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question correctly, let me make sure and come back to it. But so there's two aspects to it. You wanna make sure that the food you're eating is not inflammatory because digestion is the most frequent thing we're doing in our body. And if the process of digestion becomes inflammatory, 
then it doesn't matter what supplements you're eating. It doesn't matter, even if they are not medical, even if they're not pharmaceutical, even if you're eating, I don't know, herbal supplements or whatever it is, or whole food supplements, if your actual food intake is inflammatory, if you're doing a ton of wheat, dairy and refined sugar, that's your basic, that's not the only thing that's inflammatory, but that's a good baseline for what a lot of people are eating. There's really no way beyond that. So mm-hmm. at the everything is downhill of um or downstream of digestion. So every other process in the body. So it's really important that we start with an anti-inflammatory diet if your child is in discomfort, if your child, whether that's GI discomfort or neurological discomfort. So once that is um, once that is addressed, then we can look at further causes. There's more stuff that can happen. There can be infections. There can be, like you said, autoimmunity. But there's this concept in functional medicine of a three-legged stool my mentor, um, Andrea Nakayama, talks about it as three roots and many branches. And the idea is that the three roots of, let's say, all chronic disease are these. There can be genes, um, there can be inflammation, and there's digestion, right? So let's say we can't do too much about genes. Of course, we can. now we know about the field of epigenetics, that genes can be turned on and off based on the environment. So we want to make sure we're living in a relatively non-toxic environment. But digestion is a big thing. We have a lot of control about over digestion and inflammation just from the food we eat and just making sure that um, we, you know, we're addressing what's called dysbiosis or the, or, or the bacteria in our gut, making sure that everything is where it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy how, because they can't communicate, and I know a lot of people say, well, behavior is communication. And I believe that it definitely is. I mean, there are, it's, very clear that when Skylar is at school or at home, and if we know he's going to have a bowel movement because he starts self-injurious behavior, he starts hitting Mm. himself, he starts, you know, property destruction, he'll take the paper out of the teacher's hand and throw it or just things like that, because he's acting outwardly with how bad he feels inwardly. So I, I, always know within a few hours of, and that can go on for a couple of hours of that behavior he has a ball movement and then he's giggling and he's happy and he's fine. And I just mm-hmm. hate seeing the amount of pain that it takes for him to go through that process that we all, you know, hopefully naturally can just go through. So, you know, to your point about diets and all of that stuff, I've looked into everything for, um, giving him foods for his blood type. I- I've looked into all of the things. And the one thing that seems to have worked well with us is the specific carbohydrate diet, because we learned that it wasn't gluten for him. The Mm gluten-free casein-free diet never seemed to really show much of a change in him. It was Mm -hmm. the protein, if I'm saying that right, in the carbohydrates that he cannot process at all. So we removed all carbohydrates, um, even fruit versions, but mostly starchy carbohydrates potatoes and rice and all that stuff. And he, after about five weeks solid of that and no dairy, he was Mm -hmm. smiling again. He was laughing. He was happy. And it's just, you just don't know unless you do something as drastic as that. So how, how do you find out if the foods that they're taking in are hurting them and they're causing more problems? 
I think you always start with a basic anti-inflammatory diet. So there, there's many ways to find out. There's some testing to check for food sensitivities. But I think if you have a child with a disability that is undergoing a lot of GI issues, my non-negotiables are always to go off gluten, dairy, and refined sugar. Even if you feel that removing gluten is not enough, there's a famous quote by, um, I'm paraphrasing this, by this really, um, by Dr. Sid Baker, who's kind of the father of the biomed movement for autism. He says, if you're sitting on two tacks or two pins, removing one pin isn't going to make you feel better. But that doesn't mean you sit on that pin, right? right. So when, when people say that removing gluten didn't make them feel better, I think of it as you're sitting on five pins and you've removed one pin. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not going to make you feel better, but putting that pin back is not the answer. So the, the quest answer is finding out what are the other pins and the three pins that are poking literally everybody. And there's research that shows that everybody reacts to gluten. Most of us, gluten causes leaky gut in everybody, whether you have celiac, whether you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or whether you're like <laughs> me, where you don't react to gluten at all. I can take gluten. Nothing happens to me. I'm totally fine. All of us, gluten releases a... Um, a chemical in your, in your gut called zonulin, which causes leaky gut in everybody. Now I can probably, my gut can, you know, to put it lightly seal back, but where somebody else's SIDS gut may not be able to do that, come back to normalcy soon enough. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't matter whether you, if to give a fair trial to removing gluten, dairy, and sugar, you really want to do a few months of that. Mm -hmm. But then if that's not helping, the answer, like I said, is not to put them back, but to see if you need to layer on one more level of a, of a diet, like a specific carbohydrate diet. What you do here is you remove complex carbohydrates just so that these carbohydrates can be digested very quickly. And one of the ideas of a specific carbohydrate diet is doesn't allow um, you know, bad microbes to grow in your gut. So you're kind of, but it is not a long-term diet. It's meant, to, it's meant to be short-term, but it can be, depends on what the child needs. Mm -hmm. So there are many diets, there's paleo, there's keto, there's for some kids that have neurological symptoms. There's specific carbohydrate diet. There's GAPS, which is a variation on that. There's, there's so many specialty diets. I'm actually working on a mini course kind of listing out all of these diets and when you should consider them. My advice to everybody is to start with a basic anti-inflammatory diet. Like I said, whole foods, no gluten, no dairy, no sugar, start there. If that doesn't help, do a little bit more testing to see if there are other foods you're sensitive to or if you need to add on a, um, another layer of restriction. Do what you need to do to bring your digestion back on track and see if you can come back. There is the idea in, um, in teaching about the least uh, dangerous assumption, and that is presuming competence, right? Mm -hmm. So you can assume a child doesn't know, or you can assume a child knows in the absence of all evidence. The least dangerous assumption is to assume a child knows um, because you've done the least damage that way. Similarly, in diet, I like to bring in the idea of a least restrictive diet even though you need some level of restriction to actually see results, um, you don't wanna to add too much restriction, but you need to go where you need to go. For example, you guys needed to do SCD. You weren't seeing results without SCD. You need to do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. You always wanna remember that you wanna come down to a little bit less restriction. And just so you know, I don't consider gluten and dairy as big restrictions because I think that I have never seen significant improvements without complete removal of gluten and dairy. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so that, that's like the baseline for me. And I'm talking about kids with significant GI issues. I'm not talking for everybody, but kids with significant GI issues. So it's a hard, it, it's trial and error over and over again. Honestly, that's the mm -hmm. answer. I would recommend if somebody's really lost, you work with a nutritionist, but it's really trial and error and doing a little bit of testing to see how, how your child is doing. It takes time. 
it could take you a year to find out the exact diet that your child thrives on. Some people it's much quicker, maybe in a few weeks, you know exactly, oh, this is it and I'm good. So you have to be kind of uh, in for the ride a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always recommend journaling too. Like anytime we yes. did gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, Skyler really doesn't like sugar that much anyway, um, for like two years when he was little and then just kind of navigated away from it because I didn't see a lot, which is probably a common mistake of just adding it back in slowly. Um, but did Sid have um, any obvious GI things going on with him or anything outside of the motor delay? Mostly constipation and bloating, which they were very common in those days, Mm -hmm. but he would also be very dysregulated. Um, So more, more, a lot of laughter, a lot of um, just completely very, a lot of dysregulation. It wasn't an obvious GI symptoms, Uh, dark, really dark circles around his eyes, which are signs of um, food sensitivities or allergies, just poor digestion in general. So all of those things, um, the dysregulation was very severe when he was four to four and a half before we went on a short-term GAPS diet, very short-term, six months, then we moved out of it. But he's been gluten, dairy, and sugar-free since then, since he was four, so for the last 10 years. Even for Sid, um, when we brought in gluten and dairy back, I've tried that once in a while and a long time, I don't do that anymore, but it would take two to three days before he would become a little sluggish, but these are signs because these are sensitivities. They're not allergies. They're easily missed. So a lot of my clients would will bring in gluten and dairy back and they'll say, I'm not seeing anything when I bring it back. But if you talk to them four to five months down the line, the child is very different from what they were five months ago. So the, the, the symptoms can add up very slowly. The inflammatory process can build up very slowly. So like you said, tracking is really good. Mm-hmm. You really want to make sure that you're, you're tracking everything to see that, um, so that you can, you can observe changes in your child. Yeah. I mean, it took, it was probably week five or week six of the SCD, um, Mm -hmm. that we started all of a sudden, I mean, the teachers called us and they were like, I just have to call you. Usually it's bad thing when their number comes up and they were like, he has been laughing hysterically at nothing. Like just, he is so happy and he's doing everything we ask on the first try we ask Mm -hmm. him. And he's just conquering all his goals and all that stuff. And it was so great, but you know, at about week 11 or so, it just kind of tapered off. And I know that he's not reverting back. I think his body's just now used to the -hmm. foods that he's eating. And so this is his regulated, I think for him, he's not really high or he's not really, really low. Um, you know, behaviors Mm -hmm. are somewhat regulated. So Mm -hmm. we're just trying to get the ulcerative colitis now under control. He's on, you know, injections for that, that we just started. So I'm hoping that the two things together, the diet and the required medication for his disorder, you know, his disease, um, that the two of them work well together. I, that's my big hope. Yeah, so. absolutely. When you have, you know, autoimmune disorders of the gut, like, um, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, acid SCD has, there's a ton of research for SCD and that, so that that is one area where I would say that, um, SCD might be your least restrictive diet. So it, it you might need to be on it for a little longer than you think until you find remission. So, mm-hmm. um, even though kids without um, these autoimmune conditions can also respond to SCD like my son did for a short while, but um, SCD is totally like the diet for, uh, for many people with, with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Yeah. And he took to it pretty well. I think a lot of parents say, gosh, my kid's so picky as it is. And if I remove the fries that they eat or, you know, the few things that I can get them to eat, I'm worried that they're going to be extremely malnourished, but I've always found that Uh, Skylar's a little picky, but probably not as picky as some of these other children, but Mm -hmm. 
when they're hungry and after a couple tries of that food, maybe you change the taste a little bit or do something with it. But if you just keep trying or get it in smoothies for them or whatever, I think they'll be okay. I think it's more painful for us as parents to see yeah, our kids, you know, not wanting to eat something. And we're like, okay, you can just have your cookie or whatever. <laughs> Cause we feel bad. Usually um, this is not true for everybody. It's true for some people, um, especially if picky or picky eating is not a um, diagnosed disorder. So for example, if a child has a medically picky eating disorder, sometimes called ARFID, um, if a child is, you know, I don't want to use the term, but moderately picky, a lot of times with, with enough restriction, not enough. With the right restriction, picky eating can actually resolve like it did with Sid because the picky eating is a response to inflammation caused by food because the food doesn't feel good. The process of digestion doesn't feel good. It hurts to eat that food. Yep. So when you actually address the root cause, when you change the food, um, after there's many other causes. This is just one. It's possible this doesn't happen, but for some kids, they'll actually start eating more foods when, when you restrict. Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting because I visually saw that exact phenomenon. And we talked to our GI about it when we went for the last scopes. And he said, you know, Skylar's upper third and lower third of his intestine are so inflamed. I was telling him that when Skylar would eat his normal food before we went on the SCD diet, that he was so excited to eat and he would sit at the table and he would file his hands and smile. And, and we would give him his burrito bowl from Qdoba or whatever it was that he loved. And after about four bites, that's when he started hitting me or my husband, mm. he just started smacking us. And he said, that's absolutely no, no doubt. Why? Because this, as soon as that you take those first few bites, it hits your intestines right away. And they're so mm. inflamed that the pain mm. that he's in what he wants to eat. So he's, I think hangry because he's really hungry and he loves those foods, the taste of them initially. But then the minute they got into his system, it caused him so much pain. And he was hitting me because he's like, I really want this, but it hurts. And I don't know what yeah. to do. And so he would keep eating and then just keep hitting me through the whole meal. Um, so, you know, you just, feel I, I so hear you. And it, it's really, it's, it's really sad that this is not more mainstream that yeah. I, I personally think there's enough research and clinical ex evidence out there that, that when a child has a GI condition, they need to be off at least the basic inflammatory foods right away. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know, I, I figured rice didn't have gluten in it. So, and none mm -hmm. of the food in the bowl had gluten in it. So mm -hmm. that's when I just kept thinking, like, I don't, I don't know what else to do. And, um, <laughs> I needed you on my speed dial back then <laughs> because I just, you know, we just feel so helpless as parents because I feel like I'm doing the right things and I'm, I'm catching that he's not feeling well, but when they can't communicate to you that it's actually his belly that hurts or his head that hurts, we just are constantly guessing and we're just playing charades with them and trying to figure out what this hitting means and what this banging means. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, if it all comes down okay. to diet, that would be great to know. So, you know, yes, I, I think that a lot of it does. It would probably, um, maybe not everything does, but I would say that there is, there is a lot of it that does come down to diet. A lot of it that can be addressed through diet. Mm -hmm. Inflammation wise, um, mm -hmm. there are other issues that cannot be addressed simply through diet, but without diet, they can't be addressed without diet either. So that's where it stands. Doesn't some of the, um, the inflammation also impact, um, their, just their cognitive abilities. We know that they are very smart and most 
of our kids are age appropriate level learning, um, mm -hmm. even if they're non-speakers. But it was explained to me some time ago when Skylar was young that having gluten and having a lot of these inflammatory foods kind of felt like when a, an adult has a few drinks of alcohol and they kind of get this cloudy mind and they can't really formulate a thought without slurring their speech, that that all goes on in the brains of our kids. Is that close or does, I mean, does it, it can, inflammation in the gut can definitely cause neuroinflammation. So we have a lot of neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut. So there, there's a lot that can, so neuroinflammation in the gut is not separate from brain activity. So we know that the gut and the brain are connected through what's called the gut-brain axis. So it's it's impossible to think clearly when you're when you're miserable with inflammation in your gut. It just it just can't happen. So it um, often triggers a fight or flight response first of all. And also, if if you've ever had like severe stomach cramps, I mean, you know, um, if somebody tried to teach you advanced math at that point, um, you know what I'm talking about. It's just well, there's of course the pain response and the immediate. I mean, just that you're not in a state of mind. But otherwise, even otherwise, inflammation in the gut creates neuroinflammation. And that can, that can lead to definitely brain fog, but can lead to a lot of issues. You're just not, you're not in a state of mind. To, that, that's not your thinking state, let mm -hmm. me put it that way. That's not where, uh, that, that feeling is not when you're, when you're rested and, and calm and you're ready to process information. The learning state of the mind is a very rested state. It's a very calm state. It's where you're ready to receive information. That is very, un it's very hard to harness in the presence of chronic inflammation. Yeah, I mean, it makes so much sense. It just does. I, and I said it earlier, when he's spelling, I, I know when he is not having a good day, like he doesn't feel well or whatever, because he might smack the board instead of point it. Like he's just telling mm -hmm. me like, I'm not, I'm not in the mood to do this right now. I need, yeah. I need to not. So mm -hmm. I just, you know, I know everything comes down to just really healing his, his, his gut and taking care of his ulcerative colitis. And I, I feel like he will be so much more of a confident speller when mm -hmm. all that stuff is taken off the table or at least handled a little bit better. So I'm trying to be patient because I, I mean, like, and I'm glad you said that with Sid, that RPM and some of those things took several years for him to use an open communication, a full board and things like that. Because I think some of the stories we hear and read, people take to it within a couple months and then they're just openly communicating, you know, 20 years worth it of happen. stuff. It yeah. can happen with kids that are already very regulated. They're, they, um, their gut function, I mean, like they don't have motor issues. They don't have vision issues. What Soma calls generalized vision, which means that they don't have issues focusing on a certain thing and basically vision like us is called generalized vision. And if they have generalized motor skills, they do not struggle with fine motor skills and they're reasonably healthy in their body. Then, then it can take a week or yeah. less to just, you just, okay, somebody brought you the board, you're ready to spell on it. Mm -hmm. But the minute you have vision issues, the minute you have motor issues, now the placement of the board becomes important because if I place the board here for Sid, that's a completely different field than if I place the board here, he needs the board here. So, and that actually even changes from person to person. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, his, uh, this is what Soma calls his performance field. And I actually um, recommend a podcast by Soma. It's on my podcast. It's number 50 on my podcast. Okay. She talks a lot about performance fields. And while she's not talking about, she, she she's 
I think that what she is doing is summarizing the whole motor vision aspect. Each child has a certain area in, in which they perform, but that is also built up over time. It's not that they're born with that performance field, right? So you have to work through keeping the boards in many places. And there's, there's, there's a lot of trial and error involved in this too. Mm -hmm. So it can take a lot of time. And if the child is in discomfort, they don't always want to spell. So then you're finding the right time when they're ready to spell. So it can take, it can take a long time, but it's absolutely necessary because this is the biggest gap in functional medicine for kids right now that I see is that we're not talking to the kids. We're completely coming in from a fix it mentality. We see a broken kid within quotes yep. and we want to fix that kid. And we're not talking to that kid. We're making assumptions about these kids, about what might be ailing them. Functional medicine is really important because it addresses things that no other field of conventional medicine is doing. But we need to know that the kids are not broken. They're struggling with specific issues, just like adults are. And we need to figure out a way to get feedback from them, which is why um, letterboarding techniques um, are super important. And it's super important that it, they don't have to be open spellers, but they need to at least be able to give a yes, no, or the, you need to have a means of communication with them that is that is not um, childish um, apps on the iPad or yes, no PEX boards that often are don't work in such scenarios. Yeah, they need to be looked they need to be accessible, they need to, in my opinion, the ultimate ones, I mean, like my like holy grail is the letterboarding techniques. Mm -hmm. And mine too. And, you know, I, I love that your other important message besides, you know, the, the key of focusing on functional nutrition is presuming competence. And you talk heavily about that in your TED talk, which was wonderful, by the way. Um, and, and I just think that as parents, that's the one thing that I wished I had, had had said to me years and years ago when Skylar was younger, that all of these bubble tests that we fill out that we talked about at the beginning and all of this stuff that is somebody else giving their expert opinion, telling us that our child, you know, is no further along than a three-year-old because he's not reading novels or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the minute Skylar spelled with our spelling to communication therapist, the first time when she visited I mean, just like every parent, I think that goes through RPM or spelling and sees it for the first time, they're blown away at what their child knows. And mm -hmm. if, if parents would start the day their child is diagnosed, presuming competence, talking to them at an age appropriate level, not baby talking, not, you know, just all of that stuff that is such a, it, it just really blows my mind of the time I feel like I wasted with Skylar, mm -hmm. like walking him through, like even giving him a bath at age seven or eight and saying, you know, this is your arm trying to get him to say those words when mm -hmm. he's probably like, I know it's my arm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. could you really exactly. stop talking down to me? Um, yeah. you know, I just, uh, and you it know, it's, 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 we live in a society where this understanding is just not there. So it's, it's, um, I think it's, it's all of our jobs right now to make sure that everybody knows that, that it doesn't happen anymore to kids. Right. So it's, it's really sad. I know, I know how you feel and you know, it, it there's a, we feel a lot of guilt. We feel a lot of anger. There's, there's so much frustration at the lost time as at the lost opportunities, but, but we're so lucky that we actually got the opportunities that they yeah. came back to us. And there are so many kids that, um, you know, I, I just wish that all, everybody gets this opportunity. Yeah. I mean, yeah. cause we're told at diagnosis, I think you mentioned that in your bio too, that, um, 
you know, we're, we're all given a diagnosis and it's usually grim at the beginning. I mean, we were told Skylar will never walk on his own. He'll never talk. He'll never live independent. He'll never, 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 never. It was all these nevers. Mm -hmm. And he was two years old. So, you know, as a parent, you're, you're hit with the autism diagnosis or the Down's syndrome diagnosis or any of those things. That's enough to process, let alone being told that there's a lot of nevers in their future. And I yes. mean, I love that you kind of disregarded the diagnosis and just continued to raise Sid as if there wasn't really any challenges. I mean, you see those challenges over time and then you just work around it and figure out a different way. But I just think we have yeah. to be the positive impact in their lives because they probably hear yes. never a lot. <laughs> so. I don't think anybody else knows a thing about, about cognition, no matter how many people might, e even if you find people that have done um, PhDs in neuroscience, I don't, I think there's so much variation and no, nobody has either the authority or the knowledge to tell you what your child knows and doesn't know. Yeah. So, and um, as um, really uh, this famous educator, Cheryl Jorgensen said a while ago that there's only one thing for you to do, which is take the least dangerous assumption is to assume that your child knows. Because she talks, she has a talk and I think it's, it's pretty old. It might be from the eighties, but I'm not sure. Um, she talks about two situations where in a child that has no ability or minimal ability to communicate, you assume that they don't. Uh, you assume that they don't know, and therefore you don't offer them communication choices. You you teach them very little. Let's say twenty years down the line, you find out that they did have intact cognition, like has happened with all of us. How how much has been wasted? What have you done to that child? Right. On the other hand, let's say the child was truly cognitively deficient, a term that I don't believe in, but let's say that's a possibility. And then you just bombard them with information. You teach them space science. You teach them advanced mathematics. And 20 years down the line, you found that they didn't understand anything anyway. What have you lost? Yeah. Which sport would you rather be in? So would you rather have overtaught or undertaught? And I think everybody um, that has any sense of context would, um, would agree that they would much rather overteach. Because if they don't learn, at least you've learned stuff along the way, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so that is the least dangerous assumption. And it's so sad that we're continually as a society tech making, making these dangerous assumptions. We don't realize they're dangerous assumptions when we think our child is cognitively delayed. That is, you're playing with the future of a child. That's if you don't know, better to assume that they're smart, right? Yeah, Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's especially the case if like I have a neurotypical daughter as well and um Thankfully, she doesn't have any issues with her studies and her learning, and she's a straight A student and all of that. But I, I don't look at handling if she was dyslexic any different than Skylar. I would just teach her a different way of learning and get her the, you know, the assistance that she needs to learn the way that she learns, just mm -hmm. like I would for Skylar. We just don't do anything different. I think what saddens me more, the more that I'm delving into RPM and spelling, and I'm just so grateful that I found these things because pecs and all the things we've tried over the last 17 years just haven't resonated with Skylar. He just doesn't take to those. They don't resonate with anybody. Okay. So the, the <laughs> pec thing is, is an insult to every child's intelligence. It works for a, a, a truly two-year-old child, not for a child that you think is two-year-old in their brain. It yeah. starts, it, it's good because it's easy to pull off the Velcro. It's a, but where is the complexity? I, I don't want a cookie. I don't want to say yes or no. I don't want to play music. I don't want my iPad. Can I ask you for something else? If not, then don't show me that board. I, yep. I really don't. I get, Sid has so much, um, he says he has a lot of trauma from PECs and AAC apps on the iPad because 
what can you say? You can say, I want a cookie. I want to hear music. I want to go to the bathroom. I don't want any of those things. I can, yep. I can live without a cookie, but I can't live without give, giving you my opinion. So um, yeah, I, I just, if I hear I want a cookie one more time, I think I'll just pull out my hair. I really, I think I, there's a, I, I don't agree know with you. I, it's such an important skill for kids to learn. That is what yeah. has been so remarkable about spelling and typing and all these things, because all these kids, adults and kids like Sid are saying now, like, okay, I just got to tell you this, just because they can't verbalize it doesn't mean that the thought isn't in their head and they're finding a way to share it with us. I've said for years that two of the issues I've had with Pex with Skylar personally, and I didn't know if this was the case for other people, but I, as his mom watched, he always pulled the pack off the right side because he's right-handed. Mm -hmm. He went to the easiest one because of his motor delay. It was the easiest and one to he take. He doesn't have the motivation to try any harder because what's the worst? He's, it's either a cookie or music. Yep. So why should he even bother between like making the effort? Well, and I would say like, okay, so he, you're giving him two choices. Well, what if he doesn't want juice or a snack? And he's just picking juice. And then they're like, no, you said you wanted snack. So they'll switch them. Then he'll go, oh, fine. Then I pick the snack. I'm like, he doesn't want either. And I said, why can't you give him, you know, 15 choices to go for a walk for food for this and that? They're like, we don't want to overwhelm him with too many choices. And I'm like, well, then if he doesn't want either, why would he be motivated to pick one? But then they check off the box and they're like, well, he's mastered his goals for snack he's mastered i'm like mastered really i mean like what is that, that comes that comes back to the problem with uh, behavioral analysis as a yeah, <laughs> as yeah a, i mean and that's a whole nother podcast but i guess where i'm yeah. going is that it's frustrating to me that i have found all of this stuff about rpm and spelling and i've seen it work firsthand with my child and many many others and the other therapy styles do not embrace it. And everybody is against everybody else. It feels like if you train in one method, that is the only method that works. And if you even dabble in the other one, then you could be, you could lose your license. You could this, you could that. And it's so frustrating because if they would just look at the kid individually and say, oh, wow. Okay. Skylar knows his alphabet. He knows how to spell. Let's try this with him instead of pecs. But because he's in a program that is PEX focused and, you know, goal focused and all of that, they want nothing to do with it. So I'm having to do the spelling at home on my own and with his therapist when she zooms in. And then he's at all day, he's doing the other stuff and he's probably so annoyed. And I know that, you, you know, the, the, um, the Handleys, um, Hadleys, um, but just hearing Jamie talk about going to those programs and how it was so beneath him and he was just so bored and he felt like he was treated like he was dumb. I just, I say to Skylar every day, as soon as you can openly communicate, if you tell me you don't want to go there anymore and that you are miserable, we will stop that day. Mm -hmm. There's no reason I'm leaving you there until you're 22 because you can. Mm -hmm. I, I just, that's the stuff that's so hard as parents. I just don't want to make the wrong decisions for him. And I don't want him to be upset with us because, mm -hmm. you know, we're not, we're undermining his intelligence. So hopefully Sid's been able to express to you that you've done so many great things. For him. <laughs> no, he's not one for praise, but yeah, he, <laughs> he is, uh, yeah, he, uh, he's, he, he, he's good. He's, he's, he's happy with where he is. He wants to go to school. So we're definitely facing different challenges right now, because like you said, now convincing the, there, there's multiple battles to be fought where, um, uh, 
I, I'm definitely not in, in, intending to convince anybody to presume competence. I think that's a non-negotiable for me. I'm not going to spend time and energy trying to do that. But if that doesn't happen, then the next level of communication, I'm not even ready to engage. So if, if you can't take me at my first word that my, my son is 100% receptive and mm -hmm. can communicate 100% with me, you can watch it if you want. But then, then there's no further communication. So yeah. um, I think that, that that's where right now, it's hard for me to say I'm not a confrontational person. I'm not a person who talks like that. I generally, at least in negotiations, I'm a more of a little bit of a people pleaser. So it's, I'm saying this to you. I may not say this in the IEP, but I, <laughs> I, have, yeah. I have to, but, but that's the attitude yeah. I'm cultivating. Yeah. Well, and you're a mom first and foremost. I mean, yeah. anyone that undermines our child or underestimates them, I'm yeah. with you. I wouldn't put him there. And it's sad because, you know, that social interaction would be really great for him. Um, mm -hmm. but if he's going to be just sitting around all day doing mm -hmm. coloring or whatever at 14, then it's yeah. a waste of his time and yours. And yeah, yeah. Hopefully he understands that. I'm sure you can communicate that to him and he understands, yeah. you know, what's all involved. So uh -huh. I don't know. Well, how can people, um, get in touch with you? As I mentioned, you have a, a weekly blog and podcast, um, called functional nutrition and learning for kids. There's uh -huh. so much out there that people can um, listen and, and read. Um, but also, I know that you have some one-on-one -on -one, um, sessions that you offer uh, on your website. So can you talk just yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so the best way to follow my work is to either listen to my podcast. You can go on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and search up functional nutrition and learning for kids. Um, I'm also on Instagram and I post pretty regularly. So that's an easy way to contact me. And I am DR, that's Dr. Vaish Sarathy, D-R-V-A-I-S-H-S-A-R-A-T-H-Y on Instagram. Um, on my website, I do one-on-one -on -one consults. That's just functionalnutritionforkids.com. But I have, I've started doing group programs. Um, my, my first group offering that's just ending right now, actually, is called Roadmap to Attention and Regulation. So it's basic non-negotiable dietary techniques for, it's technically for ADHD symptoms, but it's really for focus, for attention, for mood disruption. So it's not, I, I'm not isolating it to a diagnosis because a lot of kids, and for dysregulation, and this isn't really unique to ADHD, a lot of kids with autism, kids with Down syndrome, um, experience dysregulation, experience, you know, brain fog, uh, difficulty attending to tasks. So we're, we're addressing the foundational nutritional aspects and the way to way to sign up for the waitlist for that program is functionalnutritionforkids.com slash ROAR, that's R-O-A-R, which is Roadmap to Attention and Regulation. So that's, that's what my current offering is, because I see that a lot of people are jumping into um, either not doing anything dietarily and using medication to change, which is not sustainable, or they're jumping into very hardcore dietary changes. And maybe they're they're jumping into a full ketogenic diet or they're just going gluten-free and then that's not working because there's a lot of foundational steps that, um, that to use our previous analogy, we're just removing some of the easy to remove tax. Then a lot of times you'll see results immediately. And then if you want, you can do a more, um, what should I say, a more advanced protocol. So if you like. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. I will link up um, all of your social media handles and your website so that people can easily uh, click on those and, and get in touch with you. But thank you so much. We could probably talk for several hours. There's yeah. a lot going on, but um, I just love the work that you're doing and that you've devoted so much of yourself 
um, to sharing your family and, and just functional nutrition and making sure that we all understand it. There's no reason that anybody has to live with horrible, you know, conditions and inflammation and all these things just because they have a diagnosis of autism or down absolutely. syndrome or something else. That's the, the biggest misnomer out there. That, yes, absolutely. It's just part for the course when you have an autistic child and it's not. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's nice talking to you. you Bye. Too. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of living the sky life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the living the sky life podcast within Apple podcast, Spotify, and Google play. So you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback and share living the sky life with others. Thanks again for listening.